So we have taken what I came into as thinking this was like a really wonderful episode that made me just want to like make a cup of tea and curl up on my couch with my wool blanket or my big blanket and my woolly socks. And by the end of our recording, it turns out that the entire creepy backstory is about a little girl being sexually exploited by an old man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was weird. I'm, I'm just gonna say it, was it just was. Life, a Fish Needs a Starship, your bitterly feminist sci-fi podcast. We're your hosts, Steph and Kat. Hi, Steph. Hello, Catherine. Your robe, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to post a picture on the Instagram. I um, You call it the widow robe, I call it the murder robe, because what, what I am wearing right now is the type of robe that a lady wears to deny to the police that she had anything to do with the mysterious death of her wealthy older husband. She is usually wearing this robe and denying her involvement in said death while she is pouring brandy from a crystal decanter. Yes. Yeah. She also would have a transatlantic accent. Really? Really? She would, which which it's funny that you bring that up because like me being the weird person that I am, I was walking my dog about an hour ago and just like randomly practicing a transatlantic accent. Well, uh, I want to hear this now. <laughs> <laughs> Give us your best transatlantic. Oh accent. my gosh. All right. Um, second, I don't know how good it is. It would have to be like, you know, welcome to like a fish needs a starship. We're your host, Steph and Cat. <laughs> it's terrible. But it's a work it's a work in progress. No, I thought that it was pretty good. Careful, Johnny, you're gonna blow your top and no one wants to see you without a top on. I figured that I would ask you how you are doing on this twentieth day of January in the year of our Lord, twenty twenty one at eight twenty one at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I couldn't even relish in the historic event that took place today, sadly, because, I mean, honestly, the only thing that helps me believe that everything is going to be okay is the fact that our country, not in our lifetime and not in the lifetime of our parents, but our country has in, you know, the past 200 years of its existence experienced worst I guess, objectively worse situations and has gotten through it and survived. I mean, I definitely think that now that we have adults in the room again, the 19,000 converging apocalypse-inducing situations we're experiencing as a country will maybe be under control. Yeah, you know, I will admit, like, I'm I'm going to be getting ready for bed tonight and saying to myself, wow, am I going to get to wake up in the morning and not worry about how our democracy is teetering on the edge of collapse for like the right. first time in, in a long time? I will admit, I did not feel very well this morning. I was like physically ill. I was nauseous. And I'm not a person that will often 
manifest stress that way. But I think that I didn't really manifest the stress of the last four years until very recent. I mean, I did my keyboard warrior thing and I bitched and moaned about it on Facebook and I talked to my friends about it. But and, you know, I go to a protest every once in a while. But as far as feeling the stress of what the country was becoming, I don't really think I adequately processed it until the riots. And so this morning I was very ill, very, very sick to my stomach. And that stayed until he was actually sworn in and until he finished his speech. And then I started feeling better because I, I was actually scared something was going to happen. Me I too. really I really was. And then a lot of the reporting coming out this afternoon was, you know, QAnon people being like very disappointed and maybe starting to realize that they've been duped. I was duped. You know, I think only time will tell if these people are going to leave the movement as they realize that nothing happened and perhaps they have a chance to salvage some of their relationships with friends and families. But I'm also very scared that they're just going to come up with some new theory. I mean, what was the one that we were seeing the other day that, you know, Trump and Biden are going to be subject to a a face swap surgery (laughs) and it's really going to be Trump in Biden's face being inaugurated. Stop it. That's not... (laughs) But, you know, but it, it, it's interesting, though, you know, and one of the things that we were talking about is I don't know about you, but I don't remember the before times. I don't either. I, I'm kind of at this point where I have a hard time conceptualizing a world where Donald Trump is not president. And I don't mean like I thought that he would declare martial law and like try some kind of complete fascist takeover of America. You know, it it was dicey there for a little while, but I guess that wasn't really my fear. Do you remember the series finale of Star Trek The Next Generation? No. So it was the one where Q, your favorite, sends Picard like traveling between the past and the present and the future. And there's this anomaly and it turns out that the anomaly is getting larger in the past. And I guess that's kind of how I thought about Trump. Like he was some kind of anthropomorphized anomaly who like as time went on, he would just eventually his largesse would just like fill all of space time. (laughs) like you know very 1984 there has never been anything but Trump right like what will it be like to have a functional government again run by people who are qualified and care about their jobs and know what they're doing and care about institutional integrity there's just so many there's just so many things But honestly, like what makes me upset about it still is that you see, well, I guess the the QAnon meltdown where they were all like, wow, we've been had. That was refreshing. But who knows, you know, the extent of that today. Did you you see the thing, the thing that I texted you earlier, the article where one of like the major QAnon people, I think it was like the son of the guy that founded 8chan was like, all right, guys, time to pack it in. He wrote, I'm going to quote you what he wrote. He said, we have a new president sworn in and it is our responsibility as citizens to respect the Constitution. As we enter into the next administration, please remember all of the friends and happy memories we made together over the past few years. Because, (laughs) Stephanie, the real satanic child sex trafficking cabal 
was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> I I would love for that to be the case. I would love for like eventually everyone to be like, wow, how did we ever come to actually believe that Hillary Clinton drinks the blood of children? You know, like whatever. But, but, then- but blood libel is such an ancient slur. This this kind of combination of blood libel and panic about like white slavery or child white slavery is something that's reared its head in in American culture um, multiple times. And for example, in the early 1900s, with the advent and widespread distribution of the manual typewriter, women, young women, found themselves able to apply for typist jobs. You know, they started, they started advertising these jobs to women. And so women were like out in the streets walking to work without their men being unchaperoned. And it was a, and the men folks started like getting very upset about this. And so there started coming up this whole conspiracy about your women are going to be kidnapped and they're all going to be sold into white sex trafficking slavery. And it was like this mass panic. And these things can have very lasting effects on the American psyche the eventual um, result of that particular conspiracy theory was the passage of a federal law that was called the White Slave Traffic Act of 1910, more commonly known as the Mann Act. I brought in the car, took it across the state line, got the Mann Act. Really? Look at that. That is your history lesson for the day. The Mann Act. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, I I did, you know, as you know, I love TikTok and it has basically replaced television for me. I watch TikTok now. Um, There was a really interesting TikTok post about how basically QAnon started with this like one conspiracy theory and then Mm -hmm. it sort of just sucked up all these other conspiracy theories into one giant massive conspiracy theory and all the other conspiracy theories are things that have just existed throughout time specifically the stuff that's like uniquely anti-semitic so like you know the powerful people that run the banks and you know whatever so um so in that sense yeah but like still for you to actually believe that Hillary Clinton drinks the blood of children. Like, <laughs> it's just so, it's stupid. And, and that Donald Trump is not participate. Like, if anybody's drinking the blood of children, it's Donald Trump. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like, that he's what? the savior, this fucking disgusting example of a human. He's the one that's going to save us from the, the, the blood drinking. Like not just drinking the blood they're actually torturing the children so the children will become afraid so they can harvest a hormone called adenochrome that's how the okay that's the plot of monsters (laughs) (laughs) it's extra good fear if it comes from kids (laughs) so yeah it's just like listen do you not see the person who's in the background of all these pictures with epstein that's donald trump if he (laughs) there's anybody like doing this child sex cabal thing he's there he's doing it with everybody else he's not saving anybody anyway i i just it has been a very long time since i've seen a republican do the right thing they sure as shit waited long enough 
And even and, then, it was a half-ass effort. Except Mitt Romney. He's the only one that gets any credit. Remember when he was the worst thing that could happen? Oh, yeah. And I now, almost... I, now I, it turns I, out he is the fulfillment of the White Horse prophecy. <laughs> Our bad. Sorry, sorry, Mitt. <laughs> I apologize to you and your car elevator. I remember when I was so offended by his wife's dressage horses. <laughs> I, I miss those days. I want that to be our scandal again. Dressage horses, <laughs> tan suits. <laughs> I crave that. Those were the days. They were. They were the days. So speaking of nostalgia, boy, do we get a dose of nostalgia in episode seven of Star Trek Picard, don't we, Steph? <laughs> Yes, yes, we do. I have thoughts about this episode. None of them are insightful, but mostly I'm just curious about your feelings on it, because I know that uh, you've described it as, like, being able to go back to a warm place and just, like, curl up in this episode. Parts of it. I mean, it's it's very, like, and I've spoken about this before. I've spoken about, you know, what Star Trek The Next Generation means to me because of, like, the memories that it evokes for me of, of my childhood. But, you know, so to see these characters come back and to see that they are to to turn on this episode and to see these actors inhabit these characters and to have them do it in such a way that they are recognizably the same characters but also they plausibly do seem like they've matured 30 years yeah was really cool it really really cool so I really enjoyed it um I liked seeing how the characters interacted somewhat differently now that they were no longer part of a chain of command. So I I really enjoyed that. And I mean, listen, Jonathan Frakes just looks like he gives a good hug. He does. Um, He looks like he smells good. Like, like wood chips, like musky. Yeah. Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah. I'm into into old man. uh, Jonathan Frakes. Yeah. Yes. So, all right. So we'll get into it. Uh, it's the episode seven, Nepenthe, the promised return of most beloved characters and the episode that will finally answer the question of old man Riker. Would you hit it? now or do we answer at the end of the episode i mean i'm gonna give you my answer now and the I, think I know it yes missionary <laughs> style <laughs> with the lights off i could go for some candles and and pops on <laughs> i'm gonna say no no he the i'm not ready for the granddaddy vibes Mm, okay. I think I would just take a hug and it would be like a, you know, and then maybe like I could sniff him a little bit and then. <laughs> Fair enough. So we start off this episode with a flashback to Commander O's mysterious visit to Dr. Gerardi at the Daystrom Institute, which previously we'd only gotten a little snippet of. And what was eye roll inducing? Yeah. In specific. Especially now that we know what's going to happen. Or we, right. I guess it, she's already done the, right? Yeah. And so. Yeah, she, she did that in the last episode. Oh, uh, I forget. But yeah. this, this scene made me think back to when we first met this character, this, this Commander O, who, like, 
I've never seen this actress in anything else, but I'm sorry. I'm sure she's a lovely person. She's not good in this role, and she does not get better. No. Um, and but when we first meet her, and she's conspiring with Nerissa, who was masquerading as a Starfleet lieutenant at that time, and then all of a sudden, Nerissa's back on the artifact, and it's like. Okay, how did they explain that? Did did no one miss her? I mean, she's the Starfleet lieutenant who's yeah, working. Yeah, she was just gone. Yeah, she's working at Starfleet headquarters. She just like suddenly stopped showing up for work, and they just like don't do anything about it. <laughs> I mean, I get that like spy returning to the motherland might not be guest number one, but it's got to be in the top five. Right. I mean, I would imagine that in the spy service of a government entity people are on the lookout for that sort of thing that seems eye roll inducing now have because I, knowing what's going to happen ultimately and yeah. what has already happened so she gets to learn the secret that blows that's supposed to blow everybody's mind but blows no one's mind yeah. except for Agnes Girardi. And then she manages to get onto the ship. And then she gets onto the ship, does what she's supposed to do, has a meltdown for about five seconds, and then is totally good to go. And and the way that they're framing it here, it's like she was so shocked by what she's shown, these flashes or whatever. It's just, I can't get over it, how missed opportunity to have it, something be really cool. It was, It is a missed opportunity. And, you know, my... I don't have a problem with the concept of we're transmitting these visual images to you and it's a secret that blows your mind because, as we'll learn later, it's not a message meant for human brains. Like that in and of itself is not a terrible concept. The problem to me is in the execution because I think it would have been a lot more effective if maybe they hadn't showed the audience the images or maybe right. if they just heard sounds because they show images and it's like, I've seen this before. I watched The Ring. I know how this is, you know, and it's like the same shit. And it's like nothing in those images would make anybody go batshit crazy. Exactly. Yes. And, right. And I mean, I get it. The images they're showing us, it's not the whole picture. It's like the montage version of it. But it's like, I guess you know, I just, a planet exploded. It's the 24th century. Planets fucking planets explode, explode every day. Daily. Right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it just exploded 14 years ago. Yeah, like, I just, I, I guess my hatred of Rafi's character has now, like, Rafi sort of, like, redeemed herself because I realized that I hate Rafi because Rafi is me and I am Rafi and I hate myself. <laughs> um, but now I just, I hate, that hate has transferred over to Dr. Jurati. Like, I just, I hate everything about the character. And it's not That's a believable awesome. progression for her story and yeah. her motivations are not believable. Her actions don't really match with the way that her character was written, yeah. which sometimes can be really cool. It, it, like, that's an interesting, um, you know, because when a TV show plays with your expectation, that's interesting. But I, I just feel like here, she just sucks. <laughs> So let's um, let's talk about let's do some uh, legal analysis for for a minute. Going back to this scene, O recruits Gerardi to accompany Picard off world in his search for Asoji. And she does this by mind melding with Gerardi and showing her this vision of what will happen if synthetic life is allowed to exist. 
I would describe this mind meld as um, not consensual. <laughs> Did you pick up on that? Yeah, I would say so, because she's like, let me show you. And it's, nope. and then bloop, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. So my question for you is, do you do you think there are laws about this in the Federation? About, like, non-consensual telepathy, non-consensual sharing of mental images? Well, okay, so I have a question about that. Because okay. my understanding of mind-melding was that it had, like, at least from what I vaguely remember from the original series... Like, the person you were melding minds with had to be a willing participant. You couldn't just, like, you know, you couldn't do what this lady did, which was basically, like, boom, I'm going to show you. So, like, it wasn't an easy thing to accomplish. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I've only ever seen before this episode, I think, like, mind melds where people were consensual, at least with the Vulcans, where there were mind melds with, you know, consenting um, participants. But... There is this episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called Violations. And in this episode, the Enterprise hosts this race of telepaths. They're not Vulcans. um, And they use their skills to help people, like, fully recover old memories. And it's actually really cool. Uh, They're shown helping Miles O'Brien's wife, Keiko. She has this, like, weird fragment of a memory. She, like, there's like a broken cup and they help her recover this memory. And it looks like a really legit cool experience. But then one of the telepaths in the group goes rogue and he starts inserting himself into various crew members memories and like turning the memories bad. And I mean, it's basically mental rape. And when the guy is caught, Picard tells the other telepaths, like we have no law to fit your crime. But like, why? I mean, there there are Vulcans in the Federation, there are Betazoids, there are telepathic races in the Federation, so, like, why wouldn't there be laws against this shit? I mean, I think you're probably right, I think there probably are laws against it, and so then my next question is, she's not really a Vulcan, though, right? Isn't she just, like, a Romulan? She's half, apparently, she's half Vulcan, half Romulan, and they... Never really, like, they say that later. I think they say that in the next episode. They never really explain how it is that they know that, unless it's something that they're just able to deduce from the fact that she was able to perform this mind meld. Right. The only the only other comment that I have about this mind rape scene is after O shares her stupid ring video with Jurati, She's like, I have to ask you to make a terrible sacrifice. And the scene cuts off then, but I suppose we're left to presume that this is the ask to kill Maddox. And I guess what we're supposed to take away from this scene is that Gerardi was like mind raped into killing him. Like she, because I feel like at the end of the show, the show wants us to believe that when she killed Maddox, she wasn't acting of her own free will. And I feel like that is a big ask because that's something that I feel like the show is trying to convey without explaining why that's true. Or it's just really shitty writing where they're just like, do, 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 we don't care that you killed him anymore. Interesting. So you think that she, so it wasn't reason that led her. Does mind melding work like that though? I don't know. I, you know, I guess most of what you we know about mind melding comes from the original series, which I'm not particularly well versed in. So the only time that I remember there being a mind meld in Star Trek The Next Generation was 
a consensual mind meld between Picard and Sarek, who is Spock's father, because Sarek was, he had to perform some kind of like diplomatic negotiation or mediation, but he was suffering from this uh, Bandai syndrome, I think it was called, that basically caused him to lose control over his emotions. So Picard mind melded with him and like the result of that mind meld was Picard was able to transfer some of his emotional stability over to Sarek, but Picard like got all the emotion. I mean, it, it was a chance for, you know, Patrick Stewart to show off like some world-class acting, but other than that, it didn't really make much sense. That's really the only time that I've seen a mind melt. I mean, I'm sure that there's been episodes of Voyager where there were mind melts because of Tuvok, but I've mostly blocked that show out of my head. So I'm just going to be like creepy for a second. Okay. You look really beautiful today, Kat. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, well, you look fabulous. I don't know if it's the robe or the hair, but something. Well, you look you. wonderful. I, I did. I did get a I did do a blowout for the inauguration <laughs> we go back to the artifact and Narissa starts executing reclaimed Borg when Hugh won't give up Picard's location um Steph in case you were wondering Hugh is not his pre-assimilation name oh I know <laughs> I remember I remember that episode yeah yeah they they rescued he picked him. his name well kind of they rescued they rescued this drone from like a little crashed cube and he couldn't, he kept on saying you, and they were like, oh, Hugh, that can be your name. So it's interesting that, you know, he gets this name on the Enterprise. They actually send him to be rejoined to the collective, or no, I'm sorry, he makes the decision to return to the collective because he doesn't want to put the Enterprise at risk. And he gets reassimilated into the collective. And I guess at some later point in time, he's reclaimed. And you would think that after you're reclaimed, like you get your human memories back because we've seen that happen with other characters. And he's just like, no, nah, I'm going to stick with you. <laughs> so, you know, good for him, oh. I guess. Yeah. How did I not know all of that stuff? I don't know. Um, but I guess, like, my question is, you know, does he refer to himself as Hugh, or do other characters just refer to him as Hugh, and he just takes it? I mean, uh, clearly the other Borg remember that Picard is Lacutus. Right, Lacutus. Yeah. Well, Hugh is pretty upset about all of his friends getting murder death killed by Nerissa, like, he's sobbing, (laughs) he's (laughs) sobbing over their bodies upset. And Nerissa, like any good manipulator, she tells Hugh, like, their deaths are on him because he wouldn't accede to her demands. But then she goes on to tell him that he might have doomed a trillion souls across half the galaxy because, and this is probably one of my biggest problems with the show, everything about Nerissa, from her outfits to her stupid sexy walk to her weird unreciprocated incestuous behavior with Narek screams villain with a capital V. But Nerissa herself believes that she is on the side of good. Like she believes that what she is doing is necessary to prevent some kind of robot apocalypse. And that's why if I ever was writing something, I would have you look at it. Because <laughs> I'm serious because that, so so that's a really interesting point that you're making. She why is she stereotypically villainous if what she's after is the greater good? You know what I mean? 
Like, there, right. there's literally no reason to write those characters that way. They don't need to be, like, weird, secret evil characters in, in like, a weird, evil, slightly, vaguely British, ancestral relationship with each other. They're both trying to do the right thing. They both really believe in what they're doing. Yeah, and you know? so you have Nerissa, who, like, is written as a stock villain. You have Commander O, who in later episodes is totally written as a stock villain, despite the fact that she presumably also thinks herself to be on the side of good. And it's only Narek, the fucking dude villain, who is allowed to have more than a shred of inner turmoil about what he's doing. You know, he's the one that is like depicted as being so tortured over this while his sister is like the sex pot. Um, right. And the thing is, his torture is not really believable because right. if you're if you're believe if you believe okay, so if they're if you have to accept that their belief is sincere, she's a robot. Right. So he's not doing anything to her that is worthy of feeling bad about, you know? And what he's doing is saving what is it? How many trillion souls across the galaxy that she yeah. said? You know, yeah. so like hurting the feelings of a android is not going to be, com- you know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. just, I, I don't know. But anyway, go ahead. No, I mean it's it's just you know it's just another blind spot. Nerissa wants to kill Hugh, but she can't because of the treaty that governs the artifact. And because she's not allowed to be a multi-dimensional character for more than a fraction of a second, she does her little wiggle walk walking away while she's smirking and giggling and giving the order to let La Serena go. And it's, and it's just like, okay, you think you're on the side of good. So why are you doing this like fucking evil laugh and your evil sexy? And and it's just, I mean, I know that there are women that are writing this show. Like what the fuck is going on in this writer's room that these people are like patting themselves on the back for making all of their female villains like campy cat women. I, I don't I don't understand. I would be very curious to read about that. Yeah. Um, are there women in this writing room? There are. There are women on the staff. There are women directors on this show. I mean, maybe it's one of those things like I object to stuff at work all the time and nobody listens to me. So <laughs> <laughs> so maybe like there's some poor, you know, woman writer being like, Jesus, I can't believe we did this. <laughs> I don't know. It is pretty bad, though. It really yeah, is. It is. After the scene, we finally make it to Nepenthe. So, Steph, did you know that the the name of the planet Nepenthe takes its meaning from a drug in Homer's Odyssey, which was given to banish grief or trouble from a person's mind? I did not. Where yeah. did you learn that? The interwebs. <laughs> So it's kind of an old timey combination of like Prozac and Halcyon, but also there is a plant which its genus and species is the Nepenthes alata, and it is a type of carnivorous pitcher plant. Seriously? Seriously. Oh my god. Okay, yeah. did you Google all of this right before? <laughs> um. <laughs> You know, I, I, I think I ran across the Nate, I, I ran across the drug thing. Um, and then I think I Googled it, like wanting to learn more about the drug thing. And that's how I found the name of the plant. This is like, 
this reminds me of when we first started recording and we were still feeling like bright eyed and bushy tailed about the series. <laughs> and we were yeah. like really curious about all the like the decisions in the right. show, you know, right. like why'd they do this? Why'd they show us that? Like what's this image? So maybe there are still some like little hidden nuggets of nuance in there. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. The planet Nepenthe maybe disappointingly does not entrap and digest Picard and Soji once they land there. It could have been the end of the show. I mean, that would have been awesome. That would be like multiple layers of cool sci-fi going on. And then the rest of the episode is just Riker and Troy chilling in their cabin. Like, Nepenthe is Solaris. (laughs) Um, The planet is overrun with buddy corns. Buddy corn stuff? Buddy corn? I actually don't know what that is, but I did see that one was murdered. They put a unicorn horn on a real rabbit's head to film it. Oh my god, it was so cute. <laughs> it's so cute. And and these cute little fuckers are are venomous. That's right, because yeah. uh uh what's her name? Ke- uh Kestra. Yeah, Kestra kills one and told us that she removed the sacks. So Yeah. So Picard and Soji, they spatially traject to Nepenthe and are immediately confronted by a bow and arrow wielding little girl, Mrs. Kestra. Uh, Kestra is played by this actress named Lulu Wilson, who is one of the kids from The Haunting of Hill House. And Oh, that's right. I recognize her. Yes. Okay. How would we describe Kestra? Um, I mean, she's a stock character, too. You know, the like tomboy adventurous like smart quirky child so kestra is Riker and troy's daughter she's actually named for deanna troy's older sister who died in a drowning accident when deanna troy was a baby uh but deanna didn't know that she had a sister because her mother hid that fact from her for like 35 years so is that something that i should have known from watching the episode or is that cool background information that you're giving me? No, that is cool background information from an episode of The Next Generation. Okay, see, now that's why I need to watch this TV show with you to instruct me. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's cool. Yeah. Kestra and Soji walk and talk while Kestra quizzes Soji on how she knows Picard and Soji's like, I don't know him, man. Kestra has a broken compass. She mentions she got it from her friend, Captain Crandall, which will, there are so many infuriating things about this show, but this turns out to be the most infuriating thing about this episode because Captain Crandall is mentioned like 11 billion times and we keep on waiting for the big reveal on Captain Crandall and we never meet him and he's never mentioned again after this episode, this fucking show. Oh, who, who is he? No, nobody. He's like not a character from Star Trek. And so Weird. When, when maybe that's a season two thing. I have these people never fucking heard of Chekhov's gun. You introduce <laughs> a gun. It has to go off. <laughs> it's a roll. <laughs> God. Soji is like, I don't trust anyone. I don't trust anything. I'm in the Matrix. None of this is real. But Kestra's extreme precociousness does kind of start to win her over. And there's discussion about Soji's father, who Picard says, oh, it's Data. And I guess Kestra's, like, heard a lot of stories about her parents' glory days on the Enterprise. And she turns to Soji and she's like, whoa, you're an android. And Soji's like, uh, am I? 
So so there's the scene where um, Soji and Kestra are in Kestra's bedroom and Kestra is like, do you do this? Do you do that? And they're all things that we associate with data. Um, or not that we associate with data. They're things about data. Like, do you, do you want to learn how to dance? You know, do you have saliva? Do you have blood? Et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I thought that this was a weird choice. It was a weird storytelling choice, although an obvious one. Um, because you have three characters on the island that knew data personally mm-hmm. and could sit there and talk to her about data. Right. And I understand that they wanted to, because I guess through Kestra's eyes, you get a child who's like fascinated and curious about the world. And so what you're saying, the extreme precociousness, um, you know, it, it's supposed to be charming to and possibly disarming to Soji, who's currently not trusting anybody, even though she never should have trusted anybody in the first place. But whatever. But it's uh, trusting nature. Right. 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 You know, so I get that. But I thought it was a weird choice. Like, why would you when there are three characters that knew and loved this other character on the island and you could get the same sort of like, you know, compassion if if you wouldn't get like the wander, you know, right. Uh, right. from from any of them, even uh, De- Deanna, you you mm-hmm. wouldn't have gotten that from her either. Mm-hmm. But it, to me, it would have made more sense for that conversation to take place with like any of the other characters rather than the child who didn't know Data. Yeah, I, I mean, I you know, I don't, I didn't mind getting introduced to Riker and Troy's daughter, but you know, I think you're right. It's an odd story framing choice, and you know, there may be a reason behind it. And I'd be interested in what the writers have to say about why they chose that. But yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely think you're right. But they come up on the house. Oh, in in between, Picard is like, "You are an android, and your sister was an android. Oh, she's dead. Sorry." Yeah. Uh, BT dubs. Yeah, BT dubs. They come up on the house, and this house is my dream, Stephanie. It's this, like, cozy log cabin, and if this show was hoping to evoke feelings of comfort and nostalgia, uh, they they really nailed it with this house. <laughs> I, I'm a sucker for a cabin. I really am. Deanna Troy comes out to tend to her garden, and you know what? This bitch looks great. She does. I'm sure she's had a nip and a tuck done here and there, but she looks like a lady who is not afraid to age, but takes good care of herself. And I like it. You know, she didn't nip tuck anything. That's just how she looks. Um, She's also wearing her old wig from Nemesis. She's not wearing any of the poofy bouffant wigs from the next generation. Um, Yeah, I I know her hair. Her hairstyle seems to have modernized. Yes. She sees Picard, she runs down and gives him a big hug, and being an empath, she can immediately sense that he's in trouble. And there's this really beautiful scene where she asks him how bad the trouble is, and he says, bad enough. And, like, you can actually see that she's reading him, and she's absorbing the pain, and you see the pain washing over her face. And, like, this is everything. I have no critical analysis. Inject this shit directly into my veins. (laughs) (sighs) Do you have anything to add to that? <laughs> no, no. Okay. I'm really glad that you got so much serotonin from this episode. <laughs> I did. I did. We smash cut into the kitchen where old man Riker is grating Parmesan. He's listening to jazz. He's wearing an apron. His hair is gray and unkempt. He's grown a beer belly and I am still into it. I am a sucker for a little belly. 
I just, I love it. I really do. You know? I mean, <laughs> no, who does not love a man with a built-in pillow? Um, I don't have any strong preferences for male bodies, aside from my apparent fetishistic love for height. <laughs> um, Picard appears in the kitchen and we get the Picard Riker reunion and it's full of hugs and the not insubstantial height difference between Patrick Stewart and Jonathan Frakes. We get Riker calling for shields up and perimeter scans to max because his cabin has fucking shields and it's great. I love it. So Troy comes in and she announces that Soji is pretty ably mimicking being a human, except for the fact that she has no emotions and therefore any empath or telepath would know that there is something very clearly fucking weird about her. <laughs> I, I just, I can't. Um, this also begs the question, Kestra is a quarter betazoid. Did she inherit any empathic abilities? There is precedent for this. There is a TNG episode featuring a character who was a quarter betazoid and was an empath. Oh, that's right. Because uh, Deanna is not full betazoid, right? Right. She's only half betazoid. And she's she's half betazoid, half human. Correct. Correct. Right. And there's another episode that we're going to discuss um, later on when we do episodes 8, 9, and 10. There's an episode in the last season of TNG called Inheritance where the scientist appears claiming that she was that she's Data's mother and that she was married to Nuni and Soong, Data's creator. Um, and it turns out that she actually is an android whom because the real person was killed and Nuni and Soong downloaded the real person's memories into this android. She had no idea she was an android. Um, in that episode, they were very careful not to have Juliana Tainer and Troy in any scenes together. They don't like share any one-on-one -on -one time, but Data and Juliana Tainer give a concert and Troy is in the front row of a very small audience. And you would think that she should have been able to sense her. And before you say, well, maybe Troy can't tell where emotions are coming from in a crowd. Yeah, no, she can. <laughs> she can even specifically do it at a concert. We've seen her do it before. Um, <laughs> so if if the intent of these androids is to fool people into thinking they're human, I think that uh, our, our boy Bruce Maddox uh, in cell number one was very sloppy. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to I accept that analysis. Yeah. Troy prescribes a nap for Picard. Riker prescribes <laughs> homemade pizza. And here we get our first mention of Thad in whose room Picard will be napping. Thad is Troy and Riker's dead son. Thad invented a shit ton of languages while he was a kid. There's Vivine spoken by the wild girls of the woods. Harpathy spoken by the mind witches of the southern ice. Palpla, which is the language of butterflies. He's got maps of the fantasy worlds where these languages are spoken he is the George R.R. R. Martin of the 24th century, and I'm just going to come out and say it. I think the wrong kid died. Yeah, so okay, so that's completely made up for this series, right? There's no, Correct. Correct. like, okay. Yes. Um. So I was kind of frustrated with that plot line because it's like introducing a character just to kind of justify, like, 
you know, we're not on board with the synth band because look what it did to us mm-hmm. kind of thing. But that mm-hmm. seemed unnecessary because they still could have been empathetic towards her. You, you know what I mean? Like, it just seemed silly to me. Yeah, it was like the only reason that he, that they had this storyline was to, be, like you said, to basically just be like, oh, we don't like the synth band because it killed one of our kids. But... You know, there's, there's all it, all it is, is to tell Soji some story. Right. And to make, and to make her feel like, you know, it's okay to be an android. So. Yeah, I don't, I didn't really understand that. I I just thought it was silly. It was a silly thing to throw into an episode. Like if for somebody watching the show, you would already have enough history and character development for both Troy and Commander Riker. So it just seems like an unnecessary, both of those people are, are empathetic and would be sympathetic to Soji and her situation. They're just, it, it seemed like the only reason to introduce the child was to say, oh, look, a, a poor casualty of the synth band. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, no, I agree. Unnecessary. I agree. And back on La Serena, Rafi and Rios have figured out they're being followed by a Romulan. Gerardi, who still has that tracker in her, which is how they're able to track the, the ship, she flips the fuck out and argues for just abandoning Picard and going home. Rios gets that look on his face that says, oh, shit, that girl I fucked is crazy. <laughs> and he explains that Picard is a paying client. Again, how and with what? Gerardi is then invited to come along on a ride with Auntie Rafi, who will hook her up with whatever she needs. Gerardi. I wish you would do that for me. That would be uh, nice Karate is a total square and is also like sadly the character who most resembles me minus like the murderous tendencies. I'm so offended by you saying that. That is not even a little bit true. She sucks. But she's like, I want cake. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like if, if, if somebody was like, I can get you anything you need. And by that, I mean drugs. I would be like, no, I want cake. (laughs) Can we have cake and drugs? (laughs) Is that, is that a combination? <laughs> can we do pot brownies? <laughs> Picard wakes up from his nap and joins Riker at his outdoor pizza oven. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> what is this dream in which they are living? Picard refuses to tell Riker what he's got himself into. And Riker's like, that's some bullshit. We're not on the bridge of the Enterprise anymore. Plus, like, you came here and you put my whole family in grave danger, but you won't even do me the common courtesy of, like, telling me why. Kestra and Soji. All all of all of the above is very reasonable. Yes, yes. Kestra and Soji kind of come bounding out of the house. Soji's already speaking Vivian, which Riker notes with surprise. Soji then sees the table filled with real food, which she's apparently never seen in her life. And she cocks her head in a very data-like way. You know, it's cute and it's total fan service, but I also think it would have been far more effective if we'd actually seen her do that at any other point in the series, which we have not done. So in my notes for this episode that you have never seen... Um, I actually made a comment about that, that I was going to ask you, like, has, has she been acting like Data this whole time and it just went completely over my head? Because no, I don't recall her acting like Data at any time. No, she absolutely has not. So right. this is just like something that they threw in to be cute for the fans, but in like the grand scheme of the show, it, it just doesn't really fit in. Right, because um, it's just not accurate. <laughs> yeah, so... 
Riker like sees this and immediately he knows what's up. He puts all the pieces together and surmises that Soji is an android who is related to Data and she's on the run from the Tal Shiar. And like, listen, no knock on Riker's intelligence, but th- this was not a tough nut to crack. Soji's <laughs> <laughs> um, in the garden staring at a tomato and the look on her face is like, does not compute. But yeah, let's go with believably human. She bites, <laughs> the, she bites in the tomato and she's like, real is so much better. And Troy gives her the lecture on how real isn't always better because Thad, the better child, had a virus that would have been curable if they had cultured the infected cells in an active positronic matrix. But because of the synth ban, that was a big no-no. Now, I'm no scientist, but can you explain to me what this means? (laughs) I can't. But also you would think that even if there is a synth ban, that people that are high level government officials would, maybe it's just me and my cynical view of the world, but like they probably could have just gotten a positronic brain somewhere. (laughs) But it's like, it doesn't even have to be a positronic brain. I guess it has to be a positronic matrix. And I know like a positronic matrix, it's not a real thing. It comes directly from an Isaac Asimov story. But trying to think about this as scientifically as possible, I mean, would they remove the infected cells, culture them in a matrix, and then put them back? Like, would culturing turn them into, like, super-duper immune cells? Like, I'm just genuinely curious about this. I Um, had no idea. None of, again, none of this stuff made any sense to me. Like, in the set, again, in a storytelling I didn't even bother to process it for like scientific muster because I was just like, why are they, why are they telling us this? Well, because you knew that I would do it for you. Um, (laughs) The virus that Thad had was a silicon based virus, which actually does mean something. Um, Humans and in Star Trek, other life forms originating from class M planets are carbon based life forms. We are all carbon based life forms in real life. Silicon is similar to carbon, and so scientists have actually theorized whether silicon could form the basis of alien life. I wrote these notes before my, like, one-week Battlestar Galactica binge. The Cylons are also silicon-based life forms. They have silica pathways in their brains. Oh, Um, okay. Yeah. So the consensus among scientists seems to be that no silicon based life forms could not exist. And and the reason for this, and you know, if, if any of our five listeners is like a scientist, like hit us up, let us know why we're wrong. Um, the reason for this is that when carbon combines with oxygen, it becomes carbon dioxide, which for humans is a waste product. So we breathe in O2, we breathe out CO2. When silicon and oxygen unite, they produce silica, which is a solid, which is harder to expel on a consistent basis unless you have a planet of aliens that are, like, just constantly pooping all the time. Mm, Which, I mean, I can see that. Right. So have you ever seen this movie called The Phantom of Liberty? Nope. It is a 1974 film directed by Luis Buñuel. Luis Buñuel was a critic of bourgeois attitudes about bodies and their relationship to the natural world. And as an example, there's a scene in this film where two people arrive at what at first glance appears to be a fancy dinner party. 
they gather with friends around a table, they smoke, they make small talk, but you soon realize this is actually not a dinner party at all. There's no food on the table and they're not sitting on uh, chairs. They're sitting on toilets because in this reality, public defecation is completely normal. And in fact, when a child at the party mentions that they're hungry, the child gets scolded for being indecent. Um, later during during the get-together, one of the guests discreetly asks a maid the location of the dining room, and he excuses himself to go to the dining room where he served a meal, and he eats it privately. So I don't know. Maybe it's just a failure of the imagination to conceptualize a world where a silicon-based life form is just constantly shitting silica bricks. That's a really cool movie idea. I like it. <laughs> that, I, I fucking love science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, out of the blue, my kid the other day, we're driving to the grocery store, and like out of the blue, they're like, What if we just pooped everywhere all the time? And I'm like, That's the plot of a 1974 film. <laughs> <laughs> um, scientists also posit that another barrier to silicon based life is that. Carbon-based life forms store energy in a carbohydrate, and this energy is burned up by special enzymes in a controlled process. Otherwise, we would release all our energy at once, and we would spontaneously combust. Um, silicon does not form many compounds that can perform the function performed by the carbon-based enzyme, so that creates another problem. How would a silicon-based life form regulate its thermodynamics and not just explode? Interesting. Yeah. So did is this all from like a Wikipedia hole that you fell in? No, no. I looked up like some actual scientific uh, scientific journal articles on this. Kat, I'm super impressed right now. I thank you. I feel like I, I I'm learning more than I've learned in a very long time. This is like not a very funny episode, but it's a very educational episode of like a fish needs a starship. I think that um have our episodes been funny lately? <laughs> I feel like, yeah, we've talked I, are about we it. so are we so dead inside? <laughs> this started off when we were less dead inside. <laughs> it de- it definitely started off when we were less dead inside. No, because the last kind of episodes have been like very um, lots of talking about WAP, lots of talking about our oh, that's right, our yes. sexual needs, uh, yes, yes. Or that are not met, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in in no way, shape, or form met. Um. But anyway, the point of Troy's lecture and the point of this fucking tomato, which I love tomatoes, by the way, I get like, I see a tomato on the screen. I'm like, "Mm." Um, is to demonstrate to Soji that real isn't always better. And Soji, who no longer has her trusting nature, tells Troy, like, listen, you being all nice and shit to me is only making me more suspicious about time. Um, Narek wanting to slip her the D didn't make her suspicious, but Troy feeding her a tomato does, you know? Right. Anyway, um, Picard comes and we've already established that Picard is like a dick and insensitive to the needs of any one individual at any time. Sidles up behind Soji and he fucking mocks her and she like shoves him and storms off. Troy is on Soji's side and she's like, hey, Picard, be less shitty and be more like old timey Picard, you know, approach this as if you are negotiating a truce with an alien race that wants to kill everybody on the ship and you're going to give them a lecture on morals and values and then they're going to be like oh cool we're all friends now right um 
because Troy says, you know, Soju's very consciousness has been violated. And Troy, having been a victim of mind rape and violations and a victim of mind rape in the movie Nemesis, knows a thing or two about having her consciousness violated. Right. Yeah. Back to the artifact, Hugh schemes with Elnor, who is still there for some reason, to take control control of the cube. Nerissa overhears this and she's like, that sounds like a treaty violation. Elnor takes out all of Nerissa's guards. Um, Nerissa puts her gun away. She pegs Elnor for Coat Malat. No comments on how he can be a Coat Malat when the Coat Malat are all ladies. Correct. Yeah. Um, because, like, the Coat Malat, I, I feel like, are just bread bakers. Correct. That was all, that was just, uh, honestly, somebody just threw that in to be like, oh, what if we say oh, oh, only women can be in this order? And that was it. There's nothing yeah, else to it. I know. They didn't, they didn't think that one through. They did not. Uh, they fight mano a mano and Marissa, n- Marissa, Nerissa whips out a tiny little dagger and she throws it straight into Hugh's neck. Damn. I love Hugh. I love his Borg fetish wear and I love his desire. <laughs> I love his desire for free Borg in the Federation, and I'm really sorry to see him go, especially when far less interesting characters are allowed to remain. Correct. Um, his death is pretty gruesome, like spurting arterial blood. Unnecessary. Yeah. Um, Does anybody else in the show die violently like that? I they can't... cut off. They cut off that Romulan's head. Yeah, but I felt like that was tasteful. <laughs> it's a tasteful decapitation. That was yeah, that was a tasteful decapitation. Yeah, yeah, it was very like French Revolution. It's fine. Yeah, it was cool. Um, before he dies, Hugh tells Elnor that he will need an XB to activate the Queen Cell and escape. At the dinner table, Soji gets two slices of pizza because she is a guest. What the fuck? Does everybody else only get one slice of pizza? <laughs> I mean, like, I shotgun a pizza. I mean, like an entire pizza. <laughs> What the what fresh hell is this? Anyway, what speaking of what the fuck, what the fuck is up with the candles? Like, I love a good candle. I really do. But it looks like they're conducting a seance. Is Captain Crandall dead? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Kester's talking to a ghost this whole time. I think that uh, you need to name this episode something like. <laughs> who is Captain Grendel or have you seen Captain Grendel? <laughs> With her have Captain you, Grendel. Have you seen the starship captain? <laughs> I'm just like, what the fuck? Anyway, Picard is worried about Rios and he's like, maybe I need another ship. And Kestra helpfully suggests Captain fucking Crandall and his ship. Oh, but his ship is broken. And Riker says that Captain Crandall is also broken. And I'm like, when are we going to meet this demented as fuck old Starfleet captain? Like, I am it, living it has, They have to be laying a plot for the next season. I mean, there, I, it doesn't make sense otherwise. Either that or there was a Captain Crandall and he got left on the editing room floor. You know, that that is entirely possible. There, there are things in this show that you can tell there were plot lines that they didn't explore. That they abandoned, yeah. yeah. You know what? Let me... Did you Google this already? No, I didn't. All right. Let's use the Google. Captain Crandall. Okay, so we're not the first people. Okay. Who is Captain Crandall and what does he mean for a Star <laughs> Trek series? Let's see. Do, 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 do. Oh, my God. 
the fucking fan theory is that it's Q. Please don't let that be it. No. How could this show get any worse? (laughs) (laughs) Don't bring that Q. So somebody on a Reddit said Crandall was a character in the book series Star Trek Titan. He served with Riker on the USS Titan. It's just an Easter egg. But that was a different character. That was Mordecai Crandall. And this is Rupert Crandall. Yeah. So then here is so writing on Reddit, some fans think that the character himself might be an Easter egg. They point out that blah, blah, blah. Same thing that you just said, Mordecai Crandall. Um, whether this could be Captain Crandall's brother or relative or Crandall himself using a different name remains to be unseen. Uh, might be another Star Trek character in design. Q, too big a name, drop, not to be significant. Yeah, I mean, in the past we would have said something like that, but then the show has been what it is. So I don't think of anything anymore to be significant. (laughs) I know, I know. So yeah, so Soji tells... Everybody at the dinner table, you know, Narek got some information out of me, but she doesn't really want to tell them what that information is because she doesn't trust them either. So here we get a grand Picard speech, the Picard of Yore, um, telling her to access her android abilities to act as a human lie detector. Uh, It's very classic Picard. So she's like, I don't know, fuck it, whatever. And she spills about her homeworld. She doesn't know the name of the planet, but oh, ho, ho, Captain Crandall does because Kestra has been texting him the entire time. Okay, A, why is Kestra allowed to text at the dinner table? Why are they still using texting as the main form of communication? B, yeah, that's B. C, that's A subpart two. Is it creepy? That a little girl is texting with a broken old man. Yes. <laughs> yes. This is like very Drake and Millie Bobby Brown vibes to me. I feel like this plot point should be further explored. I feel like Riker and Troy should be more concerned about this. I want to meet the strange old man who has such a hold over a precocious young Kestra. Like, I just, you know, I don't give a shit about the conclave of eight. I don't give a shit about the secret that will blow your mind. I want to find out who who is grooming Kestra to be sexually exploited in the future. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Raffi, back on La Serena, feeds Gerardi cake. Gerardi bursts into tears. And Raffi's like, oh. Is it Rios? Because I mean, you can't keep a secret on a ship of five people. Or because uh, the like Rios is like a fifteen on a one to ten scale, and Gerardi <laughs> Gerardi is like there. <laughs> She's exists. there. Yeah. Exists. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, like everybody wants a man who throws random liquor into his open wounds, you know? And what, what does Gerardi bring to the table? <laughs> Secret violent impulses? Secret, I, and traitorous impulses. Yeah. Do you really want to go to the Penth? Yes, man. We're not going to leave the captain there. I know. What are you talking about? Just like a potential mutineer. Yeah, all of that was very offensive to me, right? Yes. Um, speaking of Rios, he informs them that the Romulan is back tracking them. Gerardi pukes up her cake. Um, Rios suspects that Raffi is actually the one being tracked. Gerardi decides to handle this problem by killing herself. That would have been the one plot device that would have maybe been good. But, but okay, yeah. guys, let's not do that. 
Yeah. But she doesn't. She just puts herself in a coma, which neutralizes the tracker and makes Narek very mad. Elnor is hiding out on the artifact and he makes his way to what the internet was like, oh, it's Hugh's office. And I'm like, sure. I mean, that didn't really come across to me, but okay, we'll go with that. There's nothing there to clue us to the fact that it's Hugh's office. Elnor just so conveniently notices a Fenris Rangers SOS tag dangling from Hugh's desk. There is absolutely no continuity there. Uh, There's nothing in the series that would point to how or why that Fenris Rangers SOS got into the office or why it was in that specific location. So it's basically the reverse of the Captain Crandall problem. Captain Crandall is Chekhov's Gov Act 1 without Act 2 or 3. This SOS tag is Act 3 without an Act 1 or 2. (laughs) I... Did these people not fucking go to drama school? I mean, I took, like, drama in high school, and that's where I know this from. I so. I just, I don't, I mean, again, I'm just going to chalk this up to poor writing. Oh, my God. The next morning, Picard and Riker drink coffee and walk in the woods. Picard describes his crew as motley and notes that they're carrying more baggage than the Enterprise crew ever did. There's a truth bomb. Riker notes that he's on active reserve but he'd have to have a really good reason to ship out again Uh, Captain Crandall will never be mentioned again but this plot point will Um, (laughs) next time we see Riker his hair will be combed (laughs) that's all I'll say Uh, Kestra is sketching pictures of sleeping Soji. That's not fucked up at all. She's probably drawing them for fucking Captain Crandall. He's probably like, send me pictures of that hot android. What if Captain Crandall is like a creepy Santa Claus figure? Like, what's that? (laughs) What's that German Santa Claus? (laughs) I thought you guys, I thought you guys had the creepiest Santa. No, we have a tiny mouse. No, don't you have a Pai Natal? Well, we have Popeye Noel, but I mean, mostly there's like a little rat that comes and leaves stuff in your shoes. <laughs> <laughs> but is that, is that not Pine at all? Wait, what? I mean, I've heard of, uh, well, no, I don't think so. What's, Popeye Noel is just Santa Claus. I don't think he ever did anything creepy. What's this Pine at all? <laughs> Okay, so all I know about Pine at all is from a Saturday Night Live sketch where John Malkovich comes and reads a bunch of children a, a story about Santa. And he's like, you know, in Portugal, they have Pine at all, who's Father oh Christmas. Catherine, Portugal is our colonial oppressor. Oh, my God. Well, I didn't know that. How offensive. No, no we have a tiny rat. he leaves stuff in your shoes (laughs) well you know if you don't according to john malkovich if you don't leave pie natal a stick of butter he will steal your toe oh well maybe it's connected to the shoe thing the the rat is you there's a shoe and you put the shoe outside and then the rat will leave you like candy in your shoe but i don't know if that's actually ours or not I might be mixing cultural because I grew up in Miami and my parents didn't really do like happiness or holidays or, you know, that sort yeah. of stuff. So. so do you think what you say, <laughs> what you say is Captain Crandall, like a Santa? I mean, are you imagining him as like a Billy Bob Thornton Santa from Bad Santa? 
No. What? What's that German Santa? Krampus. <laughs> it's like the the evil brother of Santa that like does terrible shit to children or something. I think he might be Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> oh no. I think. Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. He was cryogenically frozen. To be Krampus. <laughs> to turn into Captain Crandall. We might need to take this out of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I just, again, I mean, writers, like, do you not think it's creepy that this quote unquote broken old man is texting this young girl? Yes, and if if the big reveal is that it's Q, I'm going to be fucking pissed. Doubt it's Q. I mean... If, if, because this show has given us nothing else that we want, so of course it's going to now give us things we don't need. I know. The show has, like... There was a lot of disappointing things that happened in the year 2020, and this show really... This show was one of them, yep. It shouldn't be as high on the list as it is, but it is. It is because we were so we were so excited. You listen to those beginning episodes. That shit is fucking sad, dude. I know. It's, it's sad. We were so excited. <laughs> now I'm just a shell of my former self. Yes. I mean, uh, I'm I'm holding out hope again, and I know we've said this a million times, but Discovery season two was excellent and season yeah. one was trash. So I'm hoping that this is we're we're heading in that direction that Maybe these writers, you know, grew into their writing and the actors grew into their acting and like it's going to turn around. Oh, let's hope so. I don't know. Um, so I did a lot of shitting on this on this episode, obviously, but I mean, I really did love it. Like as as far as this is my favorite episode of the whole series so far. Um, I loved seeing Troy and Riker. I loved their annoying kid who definitely does seem like she is Riker's kid. I will give her that. Yeah. Uh, I loved how Troy and Riker inspire Picard to be less shitty. I love Riker and his old man beard and I love his belly. And I hate that we didn't see him doing Riker things like swinging his leg over chairs to sit down backwards or like doing the Riker lean but, you know, you can't always get what you want. Or and... doing one of his like intense Riker looks. Yes, exactly. Mm. 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 Yeah. So um, the episode ends with Troy wearing the same outfit that she wore for the first half of the previous day. Not fucked up at all. Um, Soji is wearing a, a, a an objectively excellent wrap cardigan that, like, I covet. And they beam away, and that's the end. Um, you know... What'd you think? I, again, I, I lost all feelings for this show a long time ago. I This episode was fine. I didn't yeah. have any, you know, it was, I, I don't have the same, like, nostalgic love for the series um, that you do, like, the same uh, emotional attachment to the characters, but I can definitely see how this this episode would have been really great for longtime fans. I mean, it definitely was, and, you know... We do get a little Riker towards the end. One thing that we didn't really touch on that that did annoy me about this episode is there's a line where Troy is like, oh, I'm not as brave as I used to be. 
And that kind of pissed me off because I feel like TNG, you know, Troy was like a potted plant when the show first started. She was this very kind of weak, very frail character who didn't really do a lot. And then maybe about the fifth season, the writer started to turn it around um, and gave her more to do and gave her more agency. And you saw her start to struggle with her role on the ship, you know, and, and yeah. I need to, I need to take on more. I need to challenge myself. And it was a really nice character development for her. And the actress played it really well. And so I, I felt like that line, even though it was like a throwaway line, was a total regression, um, especially in light of how they use Riker's character later. So, so when she said that, I actually, not that I'm disagreeing with your take, I, I think it definitely is. Uh, regressive especially if you're taking it in the context of comparing her character to Riker's character um but I I understood what 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 was being what they were trying to convey which is that she now has a child one who's passed away so this child has already suffered um you know the the death of a loved one and now if something were to happen um either to the child or to her it would be like you know be something that they couldn't recover from so that's how i took it but mm-hmm. then at the end they have Riker coming in guns blazing right um so you know i i mean but i that's what i took it to mean because it, i think she said that in the same conversation where she's telling jean-luc like yo i understand why you came but like get the fuck out <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah. I mean, she didn't say that, but, you know, like, the implication was there, like, cool, 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 you need our help, but um, we've got children here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly how I feel about it. So, that <clears throat> uh, Bechdel test. The conversations between Troy and Soji, some of them did, definitely. Um, definitely not the conversation between Soji and Kestra. Um, Why not the conversation about between Soji and Kestra? Because they're talking about data. Well, that's true. I mean, I guess it depends on how you're talking about it. So, you know, yes, some are about Picard and data, but I guess like at their heart, they're really about who Soji is. Um, I mean, it's about who Soji is in relation to these men. That's true. Um, on the flip side, you do have Troy and Soji talking about Thad, but Thad is really merely a plot device to advance Soji's plot. So, yeah, but I have to take a point. I have to not give that the Bechdel point. And the reason okay. is because it's also about motherhood, you know? So it's like women talk about men and when they're not talking about men, they're talking about fucking motherhood. Yeah. Yeah. That makes I sense. don't think I'm not, I don't think that's necessarily a part of the Bechdel analysis, but I'm just saying me personally, you know, fetishizing motherhood and whatever, um, just rejecting that as like a feminist construct. No, that's, that's definitely true. But it's interesting because, you know, the way that you can like dissect any, almost any conversation between two women, like you can always come back to it and say how it's in some way, shape or form about a man. The main exception to this is as shitty of a show as it is, is fucking Voyager because you had a female captain and you had a female chief engineer. So they were constantly talking about like ship problems. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, or, like, I you know, the, the only the, talking about the nature of Janeway's humanity. The only episode of Voyager that I remember watching and being like, ugh, was uh, the episode where 
fucking Q is courting Janeway. God, I actually watched that one today. <laughs> oh my god. Ugh. I forgot that it was like still cute in the 90s for men to like sexually harass women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So we have taken what I came into as thinking this was like a really wonderful episode that made me just want to like make a cup of tea and curl up on my couch with my wool blanket or my big blanket and my woolly socks and by the end of our recording it turns out that the entire creepy backstory is about a little girl being sexually exploited by an old man yeah uh, yeah that was weird i'm, I'm just gonna, <laughs> it was just was yeah you know like i i can't I I can't justify why they decided to do that especially because we don't know who this character is I would like to, it, you know, again, uh, episode two, episode three, episode one, Stephanie would have been like, I'm sure we're going to learn so much about this later. But we're not. <laughs> we're not. He is Chekhov's gun that goes off and just makes a fart noise. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even remember that they did this. <laughs> not and like has anybody gone on that writer's instagram page and been like what the fuck man what happened to captain crandall yeah, who the fuck is captain crandall yeah <laughs> he'll be like oh you're yeah. gonna find out great things about him in season eight is q still alive the character that the actor that played q yes yes he is oh lord then it definitely is q I'll be pissed. I would be pretty pissed too. Wait a minute. I'm Googling. There's like a transcript of a chat with the showrunner. Somebody said, is Captain Crandall really soon? Um, Noonian soon. Somebody writes, you, sir, are a veritable question machine. If you knew Rupert Crandall, like I know Rupert Crandall, the idea that he could be Noonian soon would make you smile. That is so, no. No, I don't, no. What? That doesn't even make sense. Oh my god. Fucking people. Well, I suppose we shall see. I don't think we will. (laughs) (laughs) I I have exactly zero hope that we will ever find out anything about Captain Crandall. You know, I think once season two of this show comes out, even, uh, even though, like, I imagine that we, because there's so many sci-fi shows on now. So if we're going to stick with TV shows, like there are definitely other things for us to work on mm-hmm. rather than season two of a show where we didn't really enjoy season one. Right. Um, but I think we have to just because I really believe like that season two will be better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have to wonder if it's going to be like all our hopes and dreams for season one at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> this is at the oh. podcast. Like we're putting season two. This is it. It's going to be okay. It's going to make it all better. <laughs> I mean, listen, I don't care how many eggs the show lays. I'm going to watch every motherfucking episode that they put out because it's Star Trek <laughs> and I have to. Um, but you know, there, there are other shows that are out there. You're right. And I definitely think when it comes to season two of the show, we don't necessarily have to do every episode. We can squish some episodes together. And I think when we do the finale episodes nine and 10, we can put those together because it's the same episode and you know, yeah, 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 yeah. So how many episodes do we have left? Eight, nine and 10. 
I see, I see. Yeah, so we're getting close. Getting close. Yeah. All right, so over the next couple of days, I will try to edit this into something that passes for uh, an episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, thank you for listening. (laughs) Bye. Bye.